Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the, of the region of Ituria, and Trachantus and Lysanias ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words, and we ask that your spirit be with us as we reflect upon them so that we might be transformed in heart and mind and soul. Amen. As we move through Advent, the lectionary is slowly moving us closer to the moment of Christ's birth. We've seen where the story ends in lessons about the coming kingdom. This week, we move back in time to visit John the Baptist in the wilderness. John is like Jesus, the product of a miraculous birth. His father, Zechariah, had been visited by an angel of the Lord who told him that his wife, Elizabeth, would bear him a son, despite being elderly and barren. Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, further declared, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people for the Lord. And in case John's special role as a prophet wasn't made clear enough by the angel Gabriel, his father further prophesied about him at his birth. When Elizabeth gave birth to John, Zechariah proclaimed, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins which brings us back to John in the wilderness. It was away from the centers of power, away from Rome, away from the Judean leaders, away from even the high priests, that the prophet of the Most High spoke. Today's reading gives us just a taste of the message. It's a prelude of what we will hear next week. John draws on the words of Isaiah to provide a prophetic grounding for his own message. And what's interesting to observe is the way that 
John puts a spin on the message to make it relevant for his own day. When the Isaiah text speaks about preparing the way of the Lord, it by and large is doing so in a literal sense. This particular passage comes from a part of Isaiah after the Judean exiles are finally able to return to their homeland. The proclamation to make straight the paths is about getting the relics of the temple back to the people of God as quickly as possible. The desire for every mountain to be made low and every valley filled, for every crooked way to be made straight and for every rough way to be made smooth, comes from the deep-seated desires of homesickness. After all, this was not a world in which superhighways were a thing. The ability to get home was impeded by the harshness of the Judean countryside. But for John, the focus doesn't seem to be so much on a literal transformation of the land. Instead, he seems to be adopting this language to speak to the conditions of people's hearts. The content of his sermon will become clearer next week, but what we know about John gives us the clues to understand how he is working with the words of Isaiah. He will go before him to make ready a people for the Lord, declared Gabriel. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, were the words of Zechariah. Indeed, he will prepare the people of Israel, and he is preparing us if we heed his words. Just like the Judean countryside, we have obstacles within us that prevent the coming of the Lord. We have mountains and rough ways that we have built up within our hearts. And this idea was one that spoke to John Wesley when he read it. He wrote on several occasions about the ways that we put obstacles between ourselves and God. In one sermon titled Satan's Devices, he speaks about some of the specific traps that we fall into. Wesley wrote, we may take too much thought for tomorrow so as to neglect the improvement of today. We may so expect perfect love as to not use that which is already shed abroad in our hearts. There have not been wanting instances of those who have greatly suffered hereby. They were so taken up with what they were to receive hereafter as utterly to neglect what they had already received. In expectation of having five talents more, they buried their one talent in the earth. At least, they did not improve it as they might have done, to the glory of God and the good of their own souls. Or, to summarize his words, we get too caught up in the promise of future reward that we quit working in the present. We keep waiting for the moment that we will be made perfect and fail to realize that the love that God has put in our hearts is already sufficient. In another sermon titled The Unity of the Divine Being, Wesley provides us with some categories of idols. These idols are more obstacles between us and the Lord. And he begins with some categories that are fairly straightforward and uncontroversial. These he names as honor, wealth, and whatever directly tends to engender pride. But from there, things start to get more challenging. He goes on to warn of idols that are more dangerous because we suspect no danger from them. In this category, 
He considers how to balance love for our friends and family with our love for our Creator. He asks, Ought we not to bear a very tender affection to them? Ought we not to love them only less than God? Yea, and is there not a tender affection due to those whom God has made profitable to our souls? Are we not commanded to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake? All this is unquestionably true, and this very thing makes the difficulty. Who is sufficient for this? To go far enough herein and no farther? To love them enough and not too much? Can we love a wife, a child, a friend well enough without loving the creature more than the creator? To put Wesley's words into a more modern vernacular, at what point does our love for the people in our lives become more important to us than our love for God? And these questions echo the sentiment of our Lord Jesus Christ who declared, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Such a position almost certainly names a more insidious threat to our relationship with Christ than the more obvious threats of honor, wealth, and pride. After all, we talk an awful lot about love in the church, and we talk an awful lot about family in the church. But what if someone in your family says something racist or sexist or homophobic and you choose to let that go for the sake of your relationship with your family member? Have you not at that point placed your family over the reconciling love of God? What if you know someone in your family is abusive and you choose to look the other way? Have you not let your love of family overtake God's mercy and justice? But wait, there's more. John Wesley leaves the most damning obstacle for last. He writes, If, by the grace of God, we have avoided or forsaken all these idols, there is still one more dangerous than all the rest. That is, religion. It will, be it will easily be conceived, I mean false religion, that is, any religion which does not imply the giving of the heart to God. Such as first, a religion of opinions, or what is called orthodoxy. Into this snare fall thousands of those who profess to hold salvation by faith. Indeed, all of those who by faith mean only a system of Arminian or Calvinian opinions. Such as, secondly, a religion of forms of barely outward worship, how constantly soever performed, yea, though we attend the church service every day, and the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Such is thirdly a religion of works, of seeking the favor of God by doing good to men. Such is lastly, a religion of atheism, that is every religion whereof God is not laid for the foundation. 
in a word, a religion wherein God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself is not the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last point. I know that's a lot to take in, so let me summarize once again. Religion becomes an obstacle to God in four ways, according to Wesley. First, when we get so caught up in believing in the correctness of our beliefs that we exclude others based on those beliefs, then our religion becomes a problem. Second, if we practice religion simply by going through the motions, but we never let it affect our daily life, then our religion becomes a problem. Third, if we think that we can do enough good work to secure our salvation without the assistance of God, then our religion becomes a problem. Fourth, and perhaps most obviously, when we put something other than God as the object of our ultimate worship, then our religion becomes a problem. So what do we do? How do we overcome these obstacles? How can we make straight the path of the Lord? We use the love that God has put in our hearts now. We don't wait for a far-off fulfillment of the kingdom, but start living in the kingdom today. We have to constantly be checking the alignment of our motives. Do we in all things have the Lord as our guide? Or do we sometimes let, us, let our attachments guide us in directions contrary to God's love, mercy, and justice? John, prophet of the Most High, drew people away from their places of power by speaking truth. He drew people away from their comfortable lives and into the wilderness. He is still calling us into the wilderness of critical self-examination. He is calling us to evaluate how our own comforts have become obstacles to God. He is calling us to prepare the way of the Lord by tearing down the obstacles in our souls. Amen. <laughs>